standard issue for all women. Oi oi, and welcome to one of this week's Sunday Chops. Yep, it's a double portion sort of Sunday, featuring two cracking nighters with excellent women we managed to grab some time with at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Yes, and please. Over on to the one, Jen catches up with Kit Duval, author of the new young adult book, Becoming Diner, which is a sort of fiery feminist Moby Dick. Amazing. And they chat about rewriting the classics, finding the voice of your inner 14-year-old, and the forthcoming Prima Donna Festival, of which Kit is one of the co-founders, and also sounds incredible. Sandy Toxvig, friend of the show, Sandy Toxvig, will be there talking about how badly men write women, which, you know, she booed breastly to the stairs and titted downwards. Lovely stuff. You can find out details about that at their website, primadonnafestival.com, and that is on from August the 30th to September the 1st. Anyway, Jen quite rightly describes Kit as fierce as fuck, and that is definitely something you'll hear for yourself in what is a smashing chat. Not to be outdone, Bernadine Evaristo, whom you're about to hear on this episode, is also fierce as fuck. Hell yeah! Her latest novel, Girl, Woman, Other, has been longlisted for this year's Booker. It is an exploration and celebration of black womanhood, being black British, and also a love song to modern Britain, which, you know, is as complicated a relationship as you'd imagine. We also talk about the burden of representation, misguided history, and experimental form. Bernadine's a wonder, and it was a real privilege to spend time with her, so I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed doing it. Hello, I am with award-winning author, Professor of Creative Writing, and Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, Bernadine Evaristo. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for letting me into your hotel room. I promise I will be happy. It's quite swish, isn't it? It's pretty swanky pants. <laughs> with a view of Edinburgh Castle. Is that Edinburgh Castle? That is Edinburgh oh, Castle. There we go. It is so beautiful. Isn't it just? And the yeah. sun's actually shining. Does anyone live there? We could live there. Should we, should we go <laughs> and storm the castle? <laughs> yeah. And you're here up in Edinburgh to talk about your latest, is it your eighth? My eighth book, yes. Fiction, and yes. that is... Girl, Woman, Other. Yes. And we'll come back later to why I didn't refer to it as a novel, because your writing mm. is incredibly interesting. But first of all, please, could you tell us a little bit about Girl, Woman, Other? So, yes, Girl, Woman, Other is my new novel, um, and it was published in May 2019, so it's very, still very fresh. And it's about 12 primarily black British women, and in this case, I use the term women with an X. So I don't know how to pronounce that. Nobody does. Womaxon. Womaxon. So Womaxon. So W-O-M-X-N, which kind of is um, very much sort of inclusive of women of colour, but also of trans women. And I have a non-binary character in the novel. Mm-hmm. So when I call it 12 women, it includes the trans character. They're aged 19 to 93. And they are of different um, cultures and sexualities and classes and occupations. They live in different parts of the country, although probably most of them do live in London. But they have relationships to different parts of the country. And their stories intersect. So it's a novel. I call it a fusion fiction. It is a cohesive whole as a fiction. But they each have their own chapter. And I pretty much track their lives up to the present day but I go back into their childhoods to a greater or lesser extent. So when you read the book, you see the characters in the present day, but you also have a real understanding of where they've come from and how they've got to where they are. I really wanted to look at a widespread of black British womanhood because we are so absent in British fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you say that, people say, yes, what about this, what about this person? But really, when you're talking about 
a few individuals, you know that there is an absence of voices and writers. Isn't that the thing, though? Because if someone can go, oh, what about so-and-so, and they can do it for three names, and then they run out. Yes, points be made. Yeah. So I wanted to see how many women I could write about and do justice to within a single novel. And um, there are four mothers and daughters in the book, and there are also friendships. And in fact, I say there are 12 women, but there are many other women who are sort of less central as characters. They also have different professions. So one of them is a theatre director who's suddenly got a show on at the National Theatre, having mm-hmm. worked for 40 years in theatre. One is a banker. There are a couple of school teachers. Somebody's a cleaner. I have a 93-year-old Northumberland woman who's... Um, of mixed heritage, who's a farmer. So it's like, I just wanted to expand the notion of who we might be in this society, and then to look at the characters and look at what drives them and has driven them, and look at the relationships they have with some of the other women in the stories. So they're kind of interconnected, but they're not all, they don't all know each other, but they're all, they're all part of this sort of wide, kind of, or large map of, of womanhood. And I call it a fusion fiction, because I think I've invented the term, not sure, you never really know, <laughs> I googled it. Basically, I, I call it fusion fiction because my work is, tends to be quite experimental, and I wanted to create a form that was very free-flowing, and that would accommodate everything I've told you, so that you would have 12 protagonists, so 12 lead characters who would each have their own sections, and that within each section, and within each chapter... I will be able to go backwards and forwards into their past and into the present. And this fusion fiction is grammatically unorthodox in the sense that, and I don't want to say this in such a way that it puts anyone off reading the book because it's very readable. For me, it's really important that my work is readable. But within each chapter, there are subsections and, and each subsection is a single sentence. But it's broken up and patterned. So there are commas, I, I can reassure you. There are commas. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's broken up and patterned, almost like poetry, but it's not poetry. But the experience is a, hopefully a, a very free-flowing reading experience. And that's why I call it a fusion fiction, in the sense that the sentences are fused together. And then with the women, their stories are, to a greater or lesser extent, fused with each other's. So, so I've come up with this term fusion fiction. I like it. I like Thank it a lot. <laughs> and that kind of, you bled nicely into about four different questions. So I've got lots right, of different okay. ways I want to go. But that's why I didn't refer to it as your eighth novel. Because I read Soul Taurus like 14 years ago. And it blew my tiny mind as it was back then. Because I'd never read anything quite like it. Because it's poetry and prose and dialogue and patois and pigeon. I felt very involved in it because it felt very immediate. But I also sort of wanted to read it out loud. It felt like it was mm. something that I would read out loud. Is that part of your writing process? It's um, it's not what I intend to do. By the way, thank you for liking Soul Taurus because it's one of my books that nobody really has paid much attention to. And I kind of feel it was a bit ahead of its time because it is really formally inventive. Yes. As you say, with all those different forms together, but it is a novel. And I feel if it was being published today where there's more openness to experimental fiction that it might actually perhaps have been noticed a bit more. It was like nothing I'd ever read before. Yeah. And I read it while I was travelling, so I felt like I was oh, on wow. a journey yes. in the same way that the main character is. Yes. And now, I didn't answer your question, now I've forgotten the question. Oh, so yeah, so <laughs> the, the whole reading aloud thing, oh, is, yeah. that, is that something you do? Is it yeah. part of the process? I used to do it a lot more, so as I was writing, I would read it aloud to make sure that I had... Because my work is quite rhythmic, and I suppose I had a back, have background in theatre and poetry, so there is that kind of performative element to it. 
I used to, in particular, read my work aloud when I was editing it to make sure it sounded right. Mm-hmm. I have to say with the new book, which is 120,000 words, I kind of didn't really have the stamina to do that. But I think it's ingrained in me now. So I don't write for my work to be performed, but I'm very aware that there is a performative element to it. And even though, say, Girl, Woman, Other isn't written in the first person, it's written in the third person, you are inside the characters' heads and you hear their voices. So it feels like it's written in the first person. I began as as somebody working in theatre many years ago, and so I began writing for theatre. And, of course, theatre is character. It's about characterisation and it's about all the story making that goes around that, but it is about characters speaking for themselves. And that's something that I would say runs through most of my work. I'm really interested in giving voice to my characters. And that, I think, kind of makes them quite audible, perhaps. I guess you never really know how other people read because it is such Mm. a personal experience. But I perform it in my head. That's what happens. When when characters really come alive, they have little voices, you know, and you... You, you bring them to life, which is why when films are made of your favourite books, it's always a really tentative, do I want to see this? Are they going to mess up mm, how I've done mm. it in my head? Let's go back to the themes of the book. You were talking about intersectionality and intersectionality within your characters. Now, as a woman, I've noticed that the female experience is very much lumped together, like we're one homogenous mass and, you know, well, male writers write about the human experience and women just write about women's stuff. I can only imagine that is amplified tenfold when you're a woman of colour. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I wrote a tribute to Toni Morrison in The Guardian. She said in terms of literature, there's the um, human beings and then there are other people. So like brown people and, and, and other marginalised groups. And they're somehow lesser than the human beings. And the human beings are white people, right? You know, primarily white men, in fact. Yes. So I feel that we, we don't have much of a voice in this society. And my thing is really about exploring black British womanhood. Because what happens in literature is that, you know, for 40 years now, we've had African-American writers writing, publishing in this country. Often their success is imported. We've also had African writers writing and publishing, doing very well in this country. That's a great thing. I'm not complaining about that. Of course, we're an international country and we should be in and you know we need to absorb literature from all over the world but sometimes our own literature is kind of Mm sidelined and so my thing is that black British women we haven't had much of a voice in literature it's starting to change I have to say just the last few years you know since the Black Lives Matter movement or moment and since Me Too and Time's Up as you probably know the conversation around gender and and feminism and and issues to to do with race and so on have come to the fore in ways that I don't think they ever have in this country and it hasn't gone away yet so you know Vogue um, Meghan the Duchess of Sussex we're supposed to call her that now Meghan Markle you know editing Vogue and the cover is you know primarily women of color it's just an incredible thing considering that five years ago that was unthinkable and and you know for like the whole of its history, you can count on perhaps two hands the number of women of colour who've been on the cover of Vogue in this country, in Britain. So I feel that we are, we are going through this cultural shift where we have, I think, more cultural capital than before. Of course, there's, we, we know that there's a lot of stuff going on, on that's really 
terribly toxic at the same time. Yep. But I do feel that there's, you know, the young women are getting out there, they're, they're setting up magazines and initiatives for themselves. And I feel that even myself, as a black woman writer, I am being treated with more respect than I ever have been. And my work is being taken more seriously. I mean, I'm book along listed, you know. I know, I was going to get that's, to that. That's, that's so exciting. Like, when would that ever happen other than this moment, in a sense, with a book about all these different black British women? I guess you get to deal with otherness, but also the otherness within being another. That's right. So, they, you know, so one of the things about the book is that, well, the title is kind of self-explanatory but the other in the title is that they're othered because they're women of color because they're black women but they're also othered on account of some of them their sexuality or is one is trans or they're othered because of their class and lots of different ways the women are othered and they even other each other i think you were saying on tape you know the whole idea that we're sort of an homogenous blob yep. and that we're all the same mm -hmm. that's one of the things i wanted to explode these are women who wouldn't necessarily like each other or support each other. So you have characters who are gay or bisexual. You have characters who are resolutely straight and homophobic. And to me, that's the richness of who we are in this society, in this world. You know, we are as, as diverse and as varied as any other demographic. That's what I wanted to explore. So the other in the book is is very kind of um, multi-dimensional, and it operates in lots of different ways. Yeah, because you know, for such a long time, we've been a, a rich tapestry of white men. That's where <laughs> we've been, right? We still are. Well, exactly. you know, you know, um, yeah, we still are, and and there is resistance to women taking power in this society. Mm -hmm. I was talking to somebody the other day, and it was. I can't, I can't really say who it, what it was, but there was something happening and a lot of women of colour were receiving something and a couple of the white men were really offended by this and thought that standards had been lowered. But in actual fact, statistically, they were still in the majority. It's just that there were more women of colour than they were used to seeing in this situation. And so they were threatened by it. And I just think there's so much education that needs to go on, you know, and I don't think we've got to the stage where men are really taking on board feminism. Well, they don't want to. They don't want no, to take it on. That's because, absolutely I mean, right. change is hard for all of us. Even if you're willing to change, it's hard because it's, it's new. Mm. We don't really know what it's going to hold. But I think if you've had power for fucking ever, <laughs> and then someone goes, look, we can share this. No, don't want to. It's mine. Get off. Yeah. Which yeah. is what we're seeing. But again, you've led me very nicely onto a question I wanted to ask you about. One of your characters mentions the burden of representation. Mm. Do you feel that? And do you feel that despite the changes that you've mentioned, that being black British is still somehow seen as a niche? Well, you know, I have had that response to, to previous books from the industry. Mm that uh, there was a comment uh, coming from a certain quarter that my, my novel, Mr. Loverman, which is about a 74-year-old gay Caribbean man who's 74, he's in the closet, he's lived in London 50 years, that it was niche because it was black and it was niche because he was gay and it was niche because he was an older man. So you're absolutely right. We, we are definitely still seen as, as marginal and kind of, in a sense, inconsequential. There was another part to that question. The burden of representation. Oh, the burden of representation, that yeah. was it. I don't mind it, actually. <laughs> well, we can go back to Toni Morrison and you yeah. write the books that yeah. you want to read, right? That's right. I don't mind it. I think 
you know, if you'd have asked me this question a few years ago, my answers to these kinds of questions change as I evolve. Yeah. (laughs) But I feel that these are the books I want to write and I do want to represent. You know, I'm also an activist. I set up projects for people of colour, literary projects for people of colour. And I have done for, for decades. So I'm happy to be a force for good to represent. But in a sense, I'm not representing everybody. I am representing myself. I am representing my art. I am representing the initiatives that I might set up. But the problem is when it becomes representing a whole community or a whole demographic. Yeah. Like every black people in the world, like one billion people or whatever. I mean, that's nonsense. Nobody should ever be asked to do that. But I do represent myself and I do represent my politics. I am coming from, you know, it's a left wing, it's a feminist, it's an egalitarian um, political viewpoint that I've had since I was probably, since I was 19. Did you have like a little light bulb moment where you thought, hang on? No, it evolved. So I grew up in a socialist household. My dad was very political. He was Nigerian. He was a trade unionist. He was a Labour councillor. Then he got into a fight with somebody and he got kicked out of the Labour Party and he stood as an independent councillor. My mother was a union rep. Then I went to drama school and got into feminism. I was in a, on a very political course at the Rose Bruford College of Theatre and Performance, as it's called now. Um, then I formed a theatre company, Theatre Black Women, which was all about what I'm talking about, you know, putting, giving ourselves the agency to create the theatre that we wanted to produce because nobody was going to employ us and they certainly weren't, op- weren't going to offer us the parts that we would, you know, that we would be interested in playing because often, you know, we're talking about the 80s now, there would be stereotype roles and we weren't interested in that. And then, uh, and it's just evolved. And it's very interesting that we're living in a time when feminism is no longer a dirty word. For mostly. Some, <laughs> mostly, but yeah. you know, and I, I teach creative writing at Brunel University London and I've seen the difference in my students When I went there in 2011, they wouldn't say they were feminists. They were quite disparaging about feminists. Now they're all feminists. You know, they're just, they're they're, they're wearing it on their shirt sleeves and they're very proud of it and they believe in it. And, you know, the younger generation in particular are growing up with it. They're fierce, And, And also the whole gender issue, you know, transgender issues, you know, they're very accepting of it. The 19, 20 year olds. Within all of that, I have seen girl women other described as a love song to modern britain and being black british black womanhood yes and i wondered how hard it is to still love modern britain because for all of the the positive changes that we've covered like there's a fucking awful ugly face of racism like oh something that just has to be accepted now yeah but i love my britain Ah, you see, which is actually London. But, um, you know, I, I do love this country in spite of what we're going through at the moment and that people have felt, they felt enabled again to reveal their inner bigot, you know, or to, to, to yeah. even that their inner bigot has been nourished so that they, it's being developed by, you know, by the demagogues out there, the people who are encouraging them to think like that and to scape, scapegoat. Uh, various sections of our society so we're living in a really toxic culture at the moment and we have to be have to be so careful that it doesn't get out of hand essentially perhaps we do believe in the goodness of humanity but you just need to look back at 19 the 1930s it's not that long ago it wasn't that long ago and of course the young people don't have that history but you know you have to look back at that and you know that you have to be so careful that things don't get out of control but i still love this country 
it is my country. It's where I've lived most of my life. I was born here. I was raised here. I travel a lot, but I, I love coming back. I love the city of London, but I also love it when I go to the countryside, you know, which I don't do very often. I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't devalue what this country means to us because of the kind of political moment that we're going through, which hopefully will pass. And people will come to their senses again. Oh, God, please. It is, it, is, it is worrying because there's an absence of logic. I mean, this is not the racism in particular, the bigotry that's being unearthed. But there is an absence of logic around Brexit. And that's what's very worrying, that people are buying into it and they're, they're just sabotaging their own country. That's how I see it. So It's all feelings, no facts. That's right. That's right. It's all feelings. And you'd think with everything we've gone through since the referendum that a lot of people would have come to their senses and said, yeah, I voted on, on the grounds of X, Y, or Z, but actually I realise now this is a really dangerous thing that we're going to do, but actually I don't think that's what's happened. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't think that's what happened. We've got Boris as Prime Minister. Oh God, which you're going to make me cry. Which is the most horrendous scenario you can think of. So, yeah, I, I do love this country. I do. I guess we've just got to keep trucking. That's the we thing. Ha we have, it? and we have to be a presence, and we have to be vocal, and more vocal, more vocal. But you know, it's interesting because I use social media, but I kind of use it for my work. And sometimes I think, come, Bernie, you should really use it for politics. But when I use it for politics, nobody pays any attention <laughs> because I suppose the people who are interested in me are interested in me because of my writing. So when I start veering off into sort of political rants, they they actually pay less attention to me. But I hope I'm phrasing this right. But your writing's political just for existing, Absolutely, right? it is. It is. But when I go into politics with a big P, yeah. my, I'm a very political writer with a small P. When you go into that sort of, like, talking about the politicians out there and, and what's going on, I find that it's almost like people don't want me to do that. It's, it's quite an interesting thing. They well, want they, David Lammy to do that, and he does it brilliantly. He is amazing. He is. Listeners, if you're not following him on Twitter, yeah, follow do. him on Twitter. He's incredible. <laughs> Hey there, you lot. If you're wondering how you can join in on the fun of a live Standard Issue podcast, well, you're in luck because I'm here to tell you our next live show will be at King's Place in London as part of the London Podcast Festival. And we are absolutely chuffed to bits because we will be joined by comedian and disability rights activist Tanya Lee Davis, as well as journalist and co-author of the brilliant Slay in Your Lane, Yomi Adegaki. And that will be on September the 15th. You can find out more information on this and how to get tickets by visiting our website www.standardissuepodcast.com please do get a ticket it's my birthday and i will as the song goes cry if i want to technically it was her party not her birthday but same difference right hello hannah here just wanted to let you know that if you like what we do you can help us by rating and reviewing us on itunes it really does help especially if you give us five stars. Did that sound threatening enough? Give us five stars. You touched on history and your books cover history. It's, it's like mm. the backbone of what you do. Mm. And I wondered about historical representation because black British people have existed for so long, but there's no coverage there. And in a similar way that you can walk down a street in Edinburgh and in London and there are six statues of blokes you've never fucking heard of and not one woman... <laughs> I imagine, again, it's like tenfold. Yeah. It's a subject close to my heart because 
In the 1980s, I read a book called Staying Power by Peter Fryer, which was the black history of Britain. And he was, he wasn't actually the first, but he was the first person to do it in a really comprehensive way, to publish a book that looked at British history going back to the Roman occupation. And he talked about African soldiers being stationed at Hadrian's Wall in the north of the country. And it was just mind-blowing to me. Because I only knew about black British history in the 20th century, you know, and I had family who came from Nigeria in the 1920s. So I actually knew, I knew that there was a history before Windrush. In fact, my dad came, no, he came a year after Windrush from Nigeria. But, but I didn't, I had no conception. And I would say even today, most people have no conception that there were black people in Britain nearly 2,000 years ago. And then when you look at the 15th century onwards, it's been very well recorded. The archives are there and the books are starting to be written. But it hasn't been disseminated out into the wider public. That's the problem. I mean, David Odashogu, his Black and British series, was an attempt to do that. But we need many, many more programmes like that. And I think television is one of the ways in which we get to people. One of my novels, it's a verse novel, it's called The Emperor's Babe. And it's about a black girl who grows up in Roman London nearly 2,000 years ago. And that was my way of trying to explore what it would be like. I mean, the book is, uh, I, I create a kind of parallel universe. So it is set in Roman London, but it also feels very contemporary. Because mm-hmm. I, I like to play around with time as well as I form. I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> so, but Zuleika, her parents come from ancient Nubia in the Sudan. She's a, she's a black Roman London girl. You know, she's running about the streets. She gets married to a rich Roman three times her age and her life changes. But she's a very strong, feisty character. When I wrote the book, I had a residency at the Museum of London and the curators there said, oh, no, no, there's no evidence of any black people in Roman London. And I said, well, there, is, there may be no archaeological evidence, but come on. Rome was a very multicultural city itself. Yeah. Uh, the Roman road stretched over 9,000 kilometres. You know, there would have been people of colour coming backwards and forwards. And, just, and they were also, we know that they were up in the north of the country because there was evidence for the Moors, you know, nearly 2,000 years ago. So why not here? You know, there wasn't like some invisible border control where you know people of color weren't allowed in people would have been coming and going so i created this character and then after the book was published they used to have these actors who took people on tours of of the uh, galleries they created a black roman merchant to take people on the tour of the roman galleries so i was like yes result well lo and behold a few years later with uh, a forensic science becoming more sophisticated they then discovered when they re-evaluated the bones, remains of Romans from the Roman era, that there were people of colour in Roman London. So this artist got there before them. Hey, well, <laughs> I, was, I was very pleased about that. But it was a lack of an imagination that, you know, why not? Because in their minds, black people came in the 1940s. No, it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit but the narrative. If, if their narrative changes, it means that they've been doing their job wrong. That's true. That's true. And they don't want to admit that. That's true. But, you know, but that whole era now, say from the, I mean, obviously there's the period between the Romans and, say, the 16th century, where there is less kind of, the the information is less easy to access. Mm -hmm. But people have been doing the job of researching parish records and stuff and discovering a black presence in all kinds of places in this country, you know, in country places and villages and so on and so forth throughout that era which is incredible but say from the 16th century onwards it's it's absolutely ripe for exploiting by artists and the media 
because it's a history that's still un- unknown? Well, I think as progress is made and people... I mean, there's a much better way of putting this, but a less likely to be racist dicks, hopefully. Then that means that more people of colour, more women of colour get into positions where they can start doing it. Because what happens is in the past, people look for people like them. And Mm. people of colour and women weren't allowed in these roles. Mm. And now they are. It's like, oh yeah, because look what we found. Yeah, exactly. When I was an actress, they were really loath to cast people of colour in period dramas. Because they said, but there weren't any people of colour then. Number one, that wasn't true. But they didn't know that then. I didn't know that, not at the beginning when I was first acting. But number two, there's this whole idea of cross-racial casting, which now we fully accept. Mm -hmm. You know, when you see Shakespeare on the television or any period dramas, they have cross-racial casting. Cross-gender casting. Yeah. Right? You know, it's all women of colour. Richard II at at Shakespeare's Globe uh, was on this year. It was incredible. All women of colour. First time that's happened on a major stage. So I think there are... There are really interesting ways of dealing with this absence. And I just think, as you say, the more agency and control we have of the means of production, the more we can make that change, you know, happen. I'm not even cross at you for saying it so much more articulately. <laughs> <laughs> that's your job. Um, there was another aspect of history I wanted to touch on as well, because your book, Girl, Woman, Other, has got a 93-year-old woman in. Yeah. And I went to see a Hive City Legacy, and one of the characters is talking about when her ancestors came over to the UK in the beginning. Like, it was, you have to fit in, you have to fit in. And so history got forgotten. And it feels like there's a shift that actually now history is celebrated and remembered. Is that something that your 93-year-old sees? So she's an interesting character. She's called Hattie and her mother was mixed race. Her father was a white man. At the point where the novel opens, which is like last year or even this year, it's not really that specific. She has lived on the farm all her life, 93 years, but the farm has been in her family. Her ancestor built it 200 years ago. So this is a woman who is deeply rooted in the Northumberland soil. But she's not somebody who's really given to thinking philosophically about history mm-hmm. or identity or all those things. She's a farm woman. Her points of reference are what is around her. I chose her as a character because I wanted to say that our roots in this country go deep and that even though I do not know a 93-year-old farmer, it's possible that there have been in this country. So I wanted not only to get away from the city and uh, to not only position us in a metropolitan environment, which is what people expect, but to put us in a rural environment and have somebody who's very independent and still got her um, um, faculties. (laughs) She's got her marbles. She's got her (laughs) faculties of a great age who is deeply connected to the soil of this country in the north of this country and who has, you know, when she has a Christmas dinner, all her descendants are gathered round her. So she's like a matriarch of this huge clan of people, the majority of whom have become whiter and whiter as people intermarry, you know. So so, so that, in a sense, was the point of her. But, you know, the history for me is very important. There is a Windrush generation woman 
in the novel, Winsome, who came and, and worked on the buses. But she's the only one who is, a, you know, a Windrush Generation character, because I want us to get away from that, because obviously it's, it's very topical now because of what the government's done with their hostile environment, you know, with their hostile environment. That and what, is such a well-mannered and, way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what we know that they, you know, what we know how they've treated people who came with the Windrush. But so, so it's very important. But, but I still think that we need to know there, there is a lot more to our history and our presence in this country. And so Winsome is just one of 12. And then there's Bumi, who comes over and she has a, a degree in maths, but she ends up a cleaner. But then she ends up setting up her own cleaning company. And she's got a daughter, Carol, who grows up on an estate in Peckham, but is nurtured by a teacher at school and ends up at Oxford and becomes a banker. So I just wanted to show all these different journeys that these characters make and the struggles that they've had, but also the triumphs and the celebrations and, and the relationships that they've had and, you know, their different relationships to sexuality and so on. As much as I could pack in, in a sense. It sounds like a vast canvas. It is. It is. It is. But hopefully it's all integrated through their characters and their stories. So, I, I mean, it is an intersectional novel, without a doubt. But I'm very wary of saying that because people think it's some academic exercise and it's not. But the thing is, it's a damn good read, and hence why you have been long-listed for the Booker Prize. I know, I know. Is it an exciting thing? Is that important to you? Really, really, really exciting. Really, really, really important. Don't forget, this is my eighth book. Okay. It feels like an incredible validation mm -hmm. for a book that is so, in some ways, so uncompromising in its black womanist perspective so experimental in terms of the fusion fiction should be acknowledged by this this panel of judges i'm absolutely delighted you should have heard me when i heard did you squeak i was running around the house like a <laughs> lunatic and my husband was um saying i've never seen you so excited but it all ties into that whole thing of if your book gets seen then more people are aware of it's in what terms you're of, writing about absolutely so it's like you know, the book is, has only been out three months, so it's like suddenly more people are going to pay attention to it. And you know what it's like. It's a crowded marketplace. Yeah. You know, it's really, really busy out there. And so everybody's struggling to be heard and to be seen. To make this list, which in many ways is seen as the list, even though it's the long list and not the short list, it's still, for me, a way for my voice to be heard by many more people who might not have paid attention to me. So I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled. Where can people find out more about you and about your books, please? Yeah, so they can go onto my website, www.beveristo.com, and it's all there. And you said you're pretty keen on the old social media. Where can we find I you I do there? that. I do all of it. I do Instagram, a visual memoir, that's what I call it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do Twitter and I do Facebook. I think you have to now. It's also, it's one of the ways in which I feel part of a wider community of writers and artists and people interested in the arts and I feel that before we were much more isolated I mean mm. I was never isolated but there is this extensive network of people out there and we're all communicating with each other even though we may not know each other personally and I think that's a wonderful thing and that's absolutely down to social media. Bernadine thank you so much for talking thank to you. Me. Thank you. Standard issue for all women.